I'm pretty sure when historians write about this season in our world this last year and a half, that they will say one of the casualties of the last year is um, just touch, physical contact uh, among that, I think, uh, uh, the hug. It's ironic that when the world most needs a hug, we're a little bit worried about giving somebody a hug in this season. Melanie and I have a uh, nearly two-year-old granddaughter, and when she wants a hug, she has a motion. She just does this. She just bring it in. Time for the hug. She did it to a rabbit that our daughter was raising this summer. She did it to her little cousin who was just six or eight months younger than, than she, and she was like, and her little cousin was not sure she wanted a hug. We have a picture of the older granddaughter holding the young granddaughter, hugging her, and the young daughter does not look as uh, excited about the hug as the older granddaughter is. And it occurred to me that somebody here may need may need a hug. Ray Stedman told a story about a man who was walking down the street and he passed a used bookstore and just looking inside, he he saw a book with the title, How to Hug. And he thought, I've never heard of that book. That's great. I would love to hear that thinking of himself as a kind of romantic kind of guy. He thought, "I, I, I need to buy that book. So he goes in, he buys the book. When he gets back to his house, to his chagrin, he discovers It's not really a how-to book about hugging. Instead, it's a volume of a mini-volume encyclopedia in the area of the letter H, and it starts with the word how, and it ends with the word hug. It went from how to hug. I've often thought, as I remember that story by Ray Stedman, that the church can be a bit like that. Everybody knows the church is a place that serves the the Savior who loves, and we're supposed to be a people who love, but sometimes people find that we're more about being an encyclopedia of theology than about being those who embrace others. It turns out not everyone wants a hug, I get that, but when I last preached on Romans 12 a couple of weeks ago, we notice that Paul in this section from verses 9 to 21, which we might call a rule for life, this is the way Christians live. This is where the Roman road leads, we said. It leads to love for each other. And today we see it also leads to love for those who do not love us. This is a distinctive of Christians through the generations. And I'd like to teach us about that today. So would you open your Bibles with me back again to Romans chapter 12? And I'm going to begin reading with verse 14. So verses 9 to 13 are about loving each other. In fact, verses 15 and 16 continue that thought a little bit. But verse 14 and verses 17 to 21 give us a perspective on how we are to love our enemies. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 12 Verse 14, this is what Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of of everyone, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he's thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Christianity was born into a headwind. There were forces arrayed against Christ from the moment he was born. We remember, especially in the Advent season, as we get closer to that, that uh, in those early years of Jesus' life, Herod, the most powerful king in that area of Palestine, was committed to taking Jesus out, to killing him before he ever grew up and became the savior of the world. He was thwarted. Remember, Jesus' family went down to Egypt to get away from him. If that were not enough, Jesus grew up and he did good everywhere he went. He performed miracles, he was kind, he loved, and what he received in response to that was people who crucified him. They killed the only son of God. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the greatest force against Christianity was led from within the Jewish uh, gathering by a man named Saul. He was there holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. Uh, He was there wreaking havoc in the church. He was trying to arrest Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to capture some more Christians when he was arrested by the love of Jesus. You remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the same Saul who later went by his Roman name, the Apostle Paul, after he became a Christian, and he says, bless those who persecute you. Surely he remembered that Jesus, when he was trying to destroy the church, Jesus blessed him with the gift of life. Jesus offered him life. He blessed him when he was persecuting the church. Jesus said, when you persecute my church, you're persecuting me. This is the, the way that Paul was transformed by the love of God. So when he talks to the church and he says, this is the way we're to respond in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, we offer love in exchange for hatred. It starts with the mind. Remember back at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, he says we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that it might be our natural instinct to harm those who try to harm us, but we're not bound by our natural instincts, but by the supernatural transforming power of God. He changes the way we think, which changes the way we talk, which changes the way we treat other people. Jack McGorman, a professor at Southwestern Seminary many years ago, uh, made this observation. If you return evil for good, that's pathological. Like if somebody's nice to you and you're mean to them, that's pathological. That doesn't even make sense. If if you return evil for evil, if you're mean to people who are mean to you, but you're nice to people who are nice to you, that's kind of natural. That's the way we think. Um, That's the way we respond. But this is what he said, but returning good for evil Yeah, that's Christian. 
How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. He says, uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He forgives the ones who are crucifying him. You say, well, that's Jesus. That's not us. But then in the book of Acts, we see Stephen, as we're studying the book of Stephen in our devotionals that I'm posting online every day, um, Stephen is so much like Jesus that when he's being crucified, he says, don't hold, when he's being stoned to death as Jesus was crucified, as he's being killed like Jesus was killed, he says, don't hold this against the ones who are killing me. It shows us that the point of being a Christian is not just to admire Jesus. It's not even just to like Jesus. It's to love Jesus so much that we become like Jesus. We see that in Stephen. Paul believes that these believers in Rome can also live that way. When Christ renews our minds, he changes the way we think about, talk to, and treat those who oppose us. But if we do not live what we preach, then no one is going to listen to what we preach. I mean to say, what's at stake in fulfilling this rule of life that Paul describes in Romans chapter 12. You say, what's really at stake, whether I'm nice to people who are mean to me, what difference does it make? It makes all the difference because it either invalidates or validates the message of the the gospel. To the extent that Christians love the way that Jesus loved, we give a hate-filled world a reason to think. So from time to time, people will say to me these days, you're probably not surprised, Pastor, we're in a war and we gotta fight. We gotta fight against these bad people. There are these bad people. We may say, so what does God want for the people who don't love him, who mistreat Christians? What does God want for them? And something inside us says, he wants them to get theirs. He wants them to pay for the way they're mistreating Christians around the world. But in fact, what he wants for them is God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The way Paul describes this in these verses as I break it down is he says, don't do this, but do this. And he's giving us the way, verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, don't be conquered. It's the word that gives us our word Nike. Uh, Don't lose to evil, but let evil lose to you. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. And how do we do it? By being meaner than the mean people? No, he says, we overcome evil through good. So, for instance, verse 14, we don't curse those who persecute us, but we bless them. Where would we get an idea like this? Well, again, Jesus taught about this. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we either take the Sermon on on the Mount to heart or we just sort of dismiss it as something that's gonna be true someday when we get to heaven. No, in fact, Jesus spoke those words to real people like you and me, believing that we could live that out. So when we find Jesus in Matthew chapter five, verses 10 to 12, and he says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great and that's the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you later in verses 21 and 22 he says you've heard that it was said to people long ago you shall not murder anyone who murders will be subject to judgment but he says but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister 
will be subject to judgment. Watch how he says don't. Jesus taught us not to curse those who persecute us. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that means empty head, it's an insult, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Don't curse those who persecute you. What are you supposed to do to them? You're supposed to bless them. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, again, that same first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I'm telling you, most of the world's got that down. But Jesus said, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What would the world do if when people were unkind to us, we were kind to them in return. An example from the world of sports, Wade Boggs, a great baseball player, even though he didn't play for the Astros, he played for the Red Sox and uh, his great rival was the Yankees and he did really well against the Yankees. If you look at his career statistics, he, he hammered the Yankees pitching. The only problem was whenever he went to the old Yankee Stadium, if you've ever been there, it was a bit of a rough place. And there was a guy in the boxes up close and every time uh, he got ready to go to bat, this guy would just excoriate him, just eviscerate him with words, just, I mean, tear him down, call him every name in the book. And, you know, he hated it. He just hated going to Yankee Stadium because of the way that guy talked to him. And so one day he decided to do something about it. The guy insulted him as he, as he walked toward the plate and he turned around and he said, are you, are you the guy who's always calling me names? And the guy said, yeah, what are you gonna do about it? And Wade Boggs just picked up a baseball and signed it and handed it to the guy. And the guy didn't know what to do. I mean, he expected Boggs to curse him back, but instead Boggs gave him something. And the story is, that ever after that, when the Boston Red Sox went to Yankee Stadium, this guy had nothing but good things to say. I mean, he was glad to have an autographed baseball. That was worth something from Wade Boggs. And so by exchanging kindness for rudeness, there was transformation. This is the message of the gospel. Don't curse, but bless those who persecute you. Second, don't repay evil for evil, but do what is right and live at peace with everyone. In other words, um, one way to respond when somebody's mean to you is is just say, well, I'll I'll repay in kind. So um, I'm from a family of four boys, and um, in my family, I had an older brother, and his basic philosophy of life was, if you hit me, I'm gonna hit you twice as hard so that you never think about hitting me again. Now this was painful being his little brother, uh, but it was helpful sometimes in the communities we lived in because he kind of was our protector. And um, I have to be honest, when I read this this week, I thought about, I kind of grew up with two different ways of thinking from my two parents. My mom, who was a Christian, uh, grew up at First Baptist Church of Amarillo. She wanted her boys to get along. Uh, My dad wanted us to be on the wrestling team. He wanted us, in his words, to scrap, to be able to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves. Uh, He was always able to defend himself and he wanted us to be able to do the same thing. So there's four boys and literally in my household, if one of us said something unkind to the other, my dad would say, are you gonna take that from him? And we would look at our dad. It was like permission. 
And then the next thing you knew, there was a pile of boys. I mean, we were, we were fighting and we were paying each other back for things we said and we just, I mean, it was just like this all the, I'm not kidding, all the time. When our boys started doing this growing up, Melanie was like, what is going on? I was like, it's genetic, comes from my dad, came through me, it's just the way our family does things. But my mom, she would hear us fighting and come around the corner with a shrill soprano and say, Gerald! These boys are killing each other. To which my dad would look at us and say, boys, what have I told y'all about fighting? (laughs) To fight, right? No, but now in front of mom, he's like, I don't want you boys hurting each other. I've told you, you've only got three brothers. You don't have a better friend. And he goes in, he's got a whole different speech when mom's standing there. And this sort of conflict between mom's way and dad's way, I inherited that wholesale. And so, you know, the challenge for us is there's always a voice within us that says, the only way those people, look, I have a great Christian friend who mentored me for years, and this is what he used to say to me, Dwayne, when you meet an extreme personality, you have to come one up on them before they come one up on you. And I would always look at him and say, can you give me the chapter and the verse that say that? Because it sounded a lot like my dad to me, but this guy was a practicing believer. And my dad back in those days was not a believer, though he has come to believe in Christ. But back in those days, I mean, it was, you know, hey, you got to fight. That's the only way to survive. And that, that just comes naturally to us. And the challenge is not to do that. Instead, he says, don't repay evil for evil, but, but do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, it's not always possible. Not everybody wants to get along, I understand. But if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, it doesn't all depend on you, but we would agree it depends in part on us. And we would do our, we would do our part. Don't repay evil for evil. Miroslav Volf, who, whose country went through war, uh, said to triumph fully, e- evil needs two victories, not one. This is, the way, this is the way evil wins. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Again, a story I heard about a young soldier who um, had his daily devotionals. He was uh, in boot camp becoming uh, a member of the United States Army. Uh, I think in ranger training, and he's being, um, because he, he every night would, would kneel down beside his bed and pray, he was ridiculed by some of the other guys who weren't Christians, and one night while he was praying, one guy threw a boot and hit him in the head, and then threw the other boot and hit him in the other side of the head, and he just kept on praying there. He, he grabbed the boots and put them beside his bed. The next morning, the guy who threw the boots at him found his army boots perfectly shined by the guy who he threw them at. In other words, this guy returned kindness for evil. The story is, as Ray Steadman tells it, that guy, uh, the other guy, couldn't figure out, why are you being nice to me when I'm being mean to you? And he himself became a follower of Jesus Christ. This and nothing less is what is at stake. So we, we, instead of uh, cursing those who persecute us, we bless them. Instead of repaying evil for evil, we do what is right. We live at peace with other people. And, and finally, he says to us, don't take revenge. Why wouldn't we take revenge? He says, well, because it belongs to God. You leave room for God. 
In other words, in our relationships, if we will leave room for God, we can trust that God knows what he's doing. If I take things into my own hands, I can cause great pain. But if I trust God to do what God will do, God can take care of things for me. So Abraham Lincoln had many enemies. I mean, as president of the United States in a time of war, he said, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. Or as Henry Nouwen has put it more recently, Christians end hostility by extending hospitality. We saw it in Matthew 5. We, 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 love, we love not only our neighbors, but also those who foolishly think that they are our enemies. And there are examples of this. I've given you examples through the years of this. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, don't debate, don't escalate. For heaven's sake, bake them a cake. <laughs> what? Well, he says, if they're hungry, give them something to eat. You know where you see this in the Old Testament? I, I think it's actually in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. And the, the Syrian army, the Arameans, are trying to attack the Israelites. And Elisha is there. And he strikes them all with blindness. And he leads them into the city gate of Samaria. He leads the enemy army into the city. And the king of uh, Israel there in that capital city of Samaria in the northern kingdom says, should I kill them? These are our enemies. This is my chance. You brought them right into the palm of my hands. I've got my enemies right in the palm of my hands. Is this the time to kill them? And Elisha says, nope. Feed them supper. What? Bake them a cake? These people are trying to harm us. If we, this is our chance. If we let them go, they may harm us again. But by showing them kindness, we have no record that the Arameans attacked the Israelites again. They were transformed by that gracious act. Now he quotes, Paul quotes from Proverbs 25. This may uh, give you a little bit of incentive. He says, you'll heap coals of fire on their heads if you do this. If you give some, your enemy when he's hungry, if you give him food, if he's thirsty, you give him drink. You're basically, you're heaping burning coals on his head. The point is not to take great joy in them being harmed or in pain. The point is, this is going to make them think. This is going to make them realize there's something different about that person. And can I just tell you, we have seen this again and again. A simple example. If you remember back, I think it was in, it was in uh, 2002, we have the example of the Mennonite community. Uh, it was 2006, October 2nd, 2006. Charlie Robertson, do you remember this? He was a milk truck driver and he opened fire on a children's school of uh, the Amish people up there in uh, that Pennsylvania community. And uh, 10 small girls were shot. Uh, he killed five and then he took his own life. And you know, this, got this made national news. Here's the interesting thing, the Amish people said, we want to forgive Charlie Robertson for killing our daughters. And the whole world was going, what? Why would they do that? Well, because they understood that in Christ, they had been, that had to be hard. Don't you think that was hard? I would think it would be almost impossible to do that. But here's how far it went. Money started pouring into the Amish families because this is what America does when we feel sad for somebody. We send them money. So lots and lots of money came in and they said, we're gonna share our money with the widow of Charlie Robertson and with his family. If your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And more recently in Columbia, South Carolina, when Dylan Roof went in and opened fire in a prayer meeting, God help us, in a prayer meeting, he killed people. And those wonderful believers in that church in Columbia, South Carolina, made a public statement offering forgiveness. A week from tonight, we're relaunching our men's ministry, as uh, Sean Boyd said, and uh, our guest speaker will be a guy named Chris Carrier, and he has an amazing story. Kidnapped back in 1974, he was 10 years old. He was stabbed, he was shot, and left in the Florida Everglades to die. Uh, Hunter came upon him, rescued him, and uh, he has permanent uh, injury from that. But 22 years later, they found the man who shot him and who harmed him. And Chris Carrier, who had grown up in Larry Bertrand's youth ministry in Coral Gables, Florida, went to that man and forgave him. Now, it's not on us to decide whether the person receives our forgiveness or not. That's not our responsibility. What we have to decide is, are we followers of the one who forgives or are we not? And is it our goal to harm those who harm us or to give them every possible reason to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's why Booker T. Washington, a powerful statement, he said, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. I heard Jess Moody years ago at Glorietta Baptist Encampment. They had morning devotionals up in the prayer garden and I went up early and it was worth it because Jess Moody was speaking. And he told about one of the old custodians who worked at Glorietta for so many years. He was not a highly educated man over there in New Mexico, but uh, he was a cheerful man and he was always positive. He He was always whistling, he was singing, he was smiling. If he had the hardest job of all to do, he always received it well. And one day Jess Moody looked at him and said, why are you so happy? And this is what he said, and this is how Jess Moody quoted him. Because, Mr. Moody, I don't never keep nobody nor nothing in my despisery. I don't never keep, I don't keep anybody in personal hatred. Can I just ask you this morning, who do you have in your despisery? Somebody you just like, man, I can't stand that person. You, you probably have somebody in mind. It might be somebody in your own family. It might be some national politician. It, it might be your neighbor. I walked up on my neighbor one time. He had these flashing lights on the side of his house. And I I assumed, I said, we got a lot of bats in our neighborhood. I said, are you trying to keep the bats away? He said, no, my neighbor next door, he put in a new window that looks out over my house and I didn't like it. So I just keep this light flickering all the time just to irritate my neighbors. I said, well, how's it working for you? I never met this man in my life. I've never seen him again. I said, how's that working for you? He said, yeah, I don't guess he cares. Next time I walked by his house, the light wasn't flickering. People can change. We can change if we will. By the grace of God, God can change us. But here's the thing. If you'll just look in your own heart this morning and find out who you're keeping in your despisery and you let them go, you'll find out how free you can be. Let's pray. God, I thank you for a word in your word. I pray that you will help us to trust you today. Lord, I pray that you'll bring us to a place of believing that when we were still enemies, 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because, Lord, you saved us when we, by our actions, were hateful to you, we pray, Lord, that you will not stop transforming our thinking and our talking and our treating of others until we become like Jesus. I pray, God, you would help us to give people a reason to wonder about the hope that is in us. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.